Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, I welcome in studio Suze Obrecht, editor of Some Such Stories, a beautiful annual packed with incredible essays. Also on the show, Jim Bilton from Westenden on micro-publishing and the global reaction to Queen Elizabeth's death. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a wonderful title, Some Such Stories, an annual print magazine packed with original insight into contemporary experiences of culture, nature, sex, spirituality, and society. The theme for the latest issue is Flux, all about transformation and transition. I had the pleasure to welcome in our studio their editor, Suze Obrecht. The journal itself has sort of like shapeshifted and grown and evolved sort of over the years. And and so we have, we always had, it began with just essays and short stories. And at one point we were biannual. And then we just kept ending up with these slightly slipping production schedules. It was nine months. And then <laughs> pandemics happened and things were like, you know what? Take our time. This lets us get ahead and just put a bit more thought into it. But also, yeah, it's like you picked up on it's commissioned along a theme and this year the theme is flux and every year the themes are in response to basically what, what I'm trying to always do as an editor is is put out an editorial brief to writers and other creative artists that is something they already can sense in the ether it's something about how we live they said one of the past ones was disorientation and it's sort of like the one before this was action because I think it was just you know as XR were getting going and the environmental movement was very much the focus and then as I was commissioning this we were sort of coming out of it was November 21 so it was sort of just kind of creeping out of pandemic like hoping things would be okay but knowing full well that with the environmental issues that are you know global and not even seeing the wars and things coming that we're just going to have to live with these perpetual cycles of change and that as well as there being ruptures and divisions and us having to let go of normal or trying to regain that all of these shifts also open up like fishes like, like places for new ideas to spring from if we can dismantle certain ways of thinking about things maybe there are other opportunities so it's sort of the theme this time around was about trying to find light and hope in the cracks of society crumbling but yeah and then uh, basically the last two issues we've had ever more visual imagery because I was working with our wonderful art director Lydia Garnett who's a photographer and a filmmaker and previously also worked on a, another photography only magazine the accent and yeah so I mean it was working with someone more visual and bringing in new designers and this time around I think we sort of wanted to open that up even more so rather than just have a couple of photo essays we were thinking okay well let's see how people respond to the theme and let's see what work they might bring us and and we sort of had this painting which is the cover by Elio and that was really quite an instant uh, choice but they had to see like okay well these paintings yes I saw that one of those images and as a test as a painting by someone who's not technically always a painter and it was just like immediacy and I think one of the other things we were trying to do as you can probably tell with some of the visual pieces this time around is Flux is also its definition, its secondary definition, is as a unifying substance or material. So it can be a soldering thing or it can be the the way that the substance used to splice film together. But it can also be collage could function as that. And, you know, so the artworks this time around, we kind of went a bit 
more diverse in terms of practice, but also tried to bring in pieces that were not necessarily one thing or another. It's sort of like painting, but then shot or photographs, but then dissolved. So, yeah, just trying to bring as much play into that side of it as possible. And I love you mentioned the play aspect and the visual one, because right in the first story, uh, everything's treasure and nothing's dead. I mean, even in the first sentence saying we fly from London to Madrid, there is a little element as well in the text uh, yeah. as well. I mean, people can't really see it, but there is like a line. It feels like a travel, right? I think that's the that's what I see when I read this text. And I think that's the playfulness you're talking about as well, right? Yeah, I was sort of like trying to... Because people are going to have their different pathways through mm. it, but you also want to give them enough space and for each piece to then sort of be reflected in the design so that maybe it, perhaps it resonates in a different way or a certain sub-themes mm. come up. But yeah, we wanted to also, even though everything was so serious that was, and it was coming out of that time, I said we, we, didn't want, we wanted to make it also have a lot of breathing space and make it joyful and make it inspiring. And so, yeah, bringing in some of those elements, like the disruptive things, such as Isitalado's notes that are scattered throughout it and the index that has no reference really to page numbers or anything and is thematic, were sort of our ways of just kind of making it a bit more playful and perhaps even prompting people to not read it straight back to front or to sort of, you know, just have a bit of a play with it from time to time and then pick up a piece and see where it falls. Or, yeah, we're just trying to bring a bit more of, um, I don't know, a bit more joy into it, perhaps. And you were talking about, I love the cover. It is so beautiful, uh, the cover story. It's just, it's just stunning, the colors as well. I mean, would you mind describing perhaps a little bit the cover and, and perhaps the story that is based on it? Yeah, so Elio, I mean, in the end, Elio is an artist. They are British, but they currently reside in Amsterdam. And they they were actually known to Lydia. I'm not sure if that's personal or professional to begin with, but... She brought them in as a, as a potential collaborator with this piece. But actually how it was presented was, this is Elio, they made a painting, which was quite similar. It was sort of would have been, and these things are vast, you, they're canvases. Mm. The cover, which is half a, a sort of gender non-specific body in mm -hmm. swimming trunks, like quite a vivid image, which sort of, I think you can see that it's I don't know, the swimming, the water, it's sort of wavy. They're not particularly formal. And it was presented with that image, ideas for another, and some iPhone notes talking about, which became the piece of text that was brought in, talking about this experience of perhaps feeling... I don't want to give too much away, but it's of sort of like feeling perhaps in the in the wrong form and whether that form on the beach as a young teenager is bringing them attention they didn't perhaps want and perhaps trying to be submerged in water and feeling safe to be themselves. And then that's obviously partnered with where they are now and a piece of text later exploring how they've sort of returned to that similar being in water but are now much freer and able to fully express themselves in every part of their identity. But yeah, they're also, like you say, they're just really striking images and very simple, but, you know, yeah. I can definitely see this in canvases. That's really interesting. And, and Suze, how do you commission the writers? I mean, do you repeat names or are you always looking for someone new or, or do you, perhaps a balance? I don't know. Yeah, it's always, it ends up being a little of both. I mean, because there are quite a lot of pieces of text, I think there are about eight in this, mm. and you, you need a balance across um, styles of writing, you want to balanced perspectives and voices and ideas and so what tends to happen is this brief goes out to a, a writers who've written up for us in the past people who've been suggested people occasionally I'd look through the slush and have a look at what people are and get in touch with them so some of them are older contributors that then respond with a brilliant idea to that issue 
And I'm not particularly looking at how many times there have been in issues before. You don't want to ever repeat the same issue, but it will never happen like that anyway. Mm. And sometimes you just get someone who just has this wonderful response and they go in. But at the same time, while... I ha- as soon as that brief has gone out and actually in the run-up to it, I've saved over the year, you know, fragments of, you know, tag things on Twitter or, or look through publishing catalogues and then, like, spied books I've, I've read or pieces I've read or people I've read well-reviewed and I sort of go through all of those hundreds of tags looking at people I can then approach so then mm-hmm. I have to be like, OK, well, would you mind? And this would be really nice. So we sort of end up with a... Like, in this issue, we've had Kaio Chingoni, the exceptional poet, who's actually written a lyrical almost biographical essay for this issue, and Heidi James, who's a wonderful fiction author who had been in it before, and Jessica Andrews. But then other people are, you know, brand new, so Saba Sams or Evgeny Abal, uh, people that I just approached because I really connect to something they wrote quite recently, so, so balance it. And one thing I'm curious as well is about uh, some such. I believe it's a company, I believe they kind of fund the magazine in a way as well. Tell us a bit more about the company. I, I don't know myself that okay. much about Some Such. I mean, Some Such are a hugely successful uh, production company. So they make commercials, music videos, fashion films. They won an Oscar this short year for films. shorts, right? Yeah, they, they're with Anil Karia, mm. one of their directors. You had the um, Riz Ahmed starring short film that won the Oscar this year. In- incredible film. And they're sort of based out of London, LA, and they, they're... It's. I guess it could seem really odd because we have this. They are very much present in that world and winning all of the advertising awards. It's not. It's not really my zone either. But this is what they do, and they're very. They're very driven by storytelling. They're very driven by giving people space to creative people, their directors or other people they work with, space to explore, you know, things that really interest them. But the journal came of Tim, who owns the company, and Sally. They're both big magazine and book lovers. They love reading and different styles of things, but. We're sort of looking a really long time ago. I was working with them, and it must have been like eight years ago or so. And they were redesigning their website, and they're like, "Oh wait, you, at that point, I was producing some fashion film or something." And like, "Oh wait, you're also a journalist. Like, do you what could we do that's not a blog?" And we sort of just thought about the space to give writers who, you know, we knew, or maybe test out film ideas, or you know, it just it was a, it was a bit of a playful thing, an experiment, and it sort of evolved. At that point, there was a bit of a dearth of short story and essay titles in the UK, whereas the US had like the New Inquiry and Balm and other places. And yeah, so it sort of evolved in that way of oh, we'll test something out online, and then oh, we'll, we'll do a print collection because you know then it gives people a thing that they can you know, congregate around and get to know about it. And then oh, this is quite nice. Let's do another one. And it's sort of it's been amazing that they've as as Tim calls it, he says it's his folly. So we don't, you know, it's funded by commercials, but we don't advertise in it. We don't, you know, so also in that way of them really putting the money where the mouth is in terms of supporting established and growing writers to, to, to push their art form, it gives us a budget to try and build something gorgeous that people connect with every year, which is a treat. Thank you very much, Suze. And the latest edition of Some Such Stories is out now. And now, always good to welcome back to the show, Jim Bilton from Westenden Marketing. Jim is very much a print expert with a delightful newsletter about the magazine industry called Westenden Briefing. This time we discuss the rise of micropublishing. I know the name kind of says it all, but micropublishing basically are small publishers, right? And they are having quite a moment these days. Yeah, I mean, we divide them into three distinct categories. Um, the first is is news, so hyper-local news, newspapers, very digital 
um, but where individual journalists are trying to reconstruct the news model on a very local basis. The second, I think, really interesting area is magazines, what we call micro-magazines. They're sometimes called indie or artisan or new wave or, or post-digital is another one because they are much more print. And, and I think it's the excitement and the experience of print um, that really comes through very strongly. And then another area, we've got a, an annual survey called Media Futures where we map the media market. Something that we're picking up increasingly is on the work of individual influencers, I suppose they're called, or content creators, people who are using platforms like Substack or Instagram or, or TikTok. That's really outside of scope. What we call a small publishing company in media futures is under £5 million turnover. What we are picking up is there's a tremendous amount of activity that, that is coming onto the radar under 100,000 revenue, £100,000 a year revenue. And, and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on there. It is exciting, but tell us also about some of the challenges as well, because perhaps is it quite difficult to reach profitability for some of those companies, small, smaller companies? That is the big issue because clearly scale increases your likelihood of making money, which is why there's so much going on in, in the top end of the market at the moment. If you look over in the States, um, going back a, a year or so, a dot dash, the pure play operator, buying a traditional magazine publisher in Meredith and trying to shove the two of them together. Uh, on the news side, you've got the recent sale of Axios. So a traditional newspaper publisher, Cox Enterprises, uh, has bought a digital-only uh, operation. Now, they've spent $525 million buying it. So that's, that's, that's big stuff. But those are scale. And the market appears to be polarizing into the really big scale operations and then this tremendous amount of activity bubbling at the lower end where it's still really difficult to make money. And perhaps a solution for them. How, how do you see that? I mean, I can think of perhaps subscriptions and also, you know, I see here on the stack, we, we interview sometimes some of uh, these more specialist retailers. Even last week we had a new magazine shop in Toronto. Is that the way that they can uh, reach for profit? Because unlike the big players, I mean, I think each magazine they sell, I mean, you know, that's how they make uh, their money perhaps and not just uh, by uh, advertising or, or digital reach. Again, the business model is very different from, from publisher to publisher and from retailer to, to retailer. Yeah, there has been, and again, it feels like an explosion of these really specialist retail outlets. So in Monocle, you've got one of your own, uh, or more than one, you've got several. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are retailers out there where the purchasing experience of print is almost as important as the reading experience. But what is clear, yeah, you've touched on it, subscriptions. Subscriptions are a very important route to market, clearly very cost efficient in terms of going retail. Retail tends to be sale or return, go into mainstream retail and at the grocers and WH Smith, and you have to be talking about big numbers and big wastage levels. 
So subscriptions plus specialist retail seems to be the way forward, yeah. Do you think, uh, you know, smaller publishing companies or even smaller magazines in terms of reach, can they compete with the big players? Or uh, do you think the big uh, companies, they look at the smaller titles and say, oh my God, we need to catch up because they are doing something exciting and different. And we need to kind of take some of those elements from the smaller publishers as well. Well, I think it's interesting that uh, obviously the big publishers at scale and they can execute things in a much bigger way. Um, but a lot of what the big publishers are doing, they are replicating. Sometimes they're simply copying what mm. the smaller publishers are doing. And a lot of the smaller publishers, and I was listening to the interview, you had a fascinating interview um, a few days ago with uh, Outsider magazine in Slovenia, where their model, so they are architects, they produce this very high-end print publication, but they've got their own retail shop in which they have live events. And the retail shop is a manifestation, if you, if you like. It's their vision made real in the building, but it's also made real in the magazine that they went for very odd paper, color and size, and came up with a really funky print magazine. But they plug on to that live event, so they now run an architectural festival and make awards. Uh, so their, their business model is, is a really fascinating one, but one that seems to be hitting scale. So they're selling, they claim about 8,000 copies of the magazine, which is a quarterly, at a high cover price. So they're beginning to build scale and beginning to build in the profitability, but by doing lots of different things at the same time. And it's interesting that a lot of publications, perhaps outsider as well, that they are going to the print first, uh, you know, which a lot of people, a lot of media say, oh, you know, now everything has to be digital and, and then the print it needs to be something else. But it's quite interesting to see that it's still quite a big thing, the print first, right? It is. There are still a lot of you know, significant publishers who make a lot of money out of print. Uh, for example, the juvenile market, for example, mm. uh, and that's very much driven by the fact there isn't very much advertising. So where you get your money from very much determines what platform you use. So juvenile titles, comics, have got cover mounts, they're print first. There isn't a growing digital element, but there's no advertising uh, or very little which is really what drives people down the digital route and the big publishers into programmatic advertising and, and so on. So again, scale and the where you get your money from makes a, a very big difference as to what the product is that plops out at the end. And Jen, I just want to sell a little bit of your work because I know you have a newsletter, the, the West End uh, Briefing, which I think is fantastic. Tell oh, us, uh, yeah, tell us about our listeners because you know it's good. It's a good overview of the industry. We find out so so much information about it. But tell us a bit more the work you do because it's quite you know there's a lot of detail and international as well. Yeah, well, the idea behind. The newsletter and it's it's um, six times a year so it's a review it stands back from the daily weekly flow of information and there's an incredible amount of media information about the media business uh, there's actually one newsletter i get which comes out with three issues every day 
so the idea of, of Western briefings to stand back from the detail to say what's significant and what isn't, and to look at every platform. So every route to market, whether that's digital, whether it's retail or subscriptions, newspapers and, and magazines, and just to take this, this real overview as to what's going on in the media business and what we call audience. Um, used to be called circulation or distribution. Audience is the funky word now. <laughs> How do you reach the consumer? And also a consumer who wants to be much more involved in the content creation whether that's through blogs, through emailing stuff in. And I think some of the smaller publishers are very hot on that as well, of really engaging their audience in a two-way conversation. Thank you very much, Jim. For more, go to westenden.com. And finally on the show, Queen Elizabeth II died this week. We look at the global reaction of such an influential figure. This is ABC News. We're interrupting our programs to inform you Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has died. She passed away at Balmoral Castle this afternoon, UK time. During the past seven hours, Britain and the world has been waiting for news after hearing of doctors' grave concerns for Her Majesty's health. Queen Elizabeth... La Reine Elizabeth II n'est plus de ce monde. Elle est décédée cet après-midi à Balmoral. De toute évidence, les... la famille royale a attendu avant de l'annoncer. Et ce qu'on pressentait est donc la vérité. Elisabeth II a rendu... Weltweit haben die Menschen in den vergangenen Stunden an Königin Elisabeth II gedacht, seitdem heute Mittag bekannt gegeben wurde, dass es ihr gesundheitlich schlecht geht. Nun wurde vor wenigen Minuten die offizielle Todesnachricht herausgegeben. Mehr als 70 Jahre hatte die Queen auf dem britischen Thron gesessen, so lange. The reaction there from Australia, from France and from Germany. Well, let's hear now from our correspondents and voices across the globe. I'm delighted to say that Monocle's Fiona Wilson, our Tokyo bureau chief and senior Asia editor, joins me, as does Thomas Lewis, Monocle's correspondent in Toronto. And also we can hear from Florence Biedermann, former London bureau chief for the AFP news agency, who's currently in Paris. A very good morning to you all. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. morning. Um, Fiona, let's let's talk about you because how is this being taken in in Tokyo, where you have geographical distance, time distances, and and also huge cultural distances? Yeah, you're right about the time difference. I mean, the announcement came in the middle of night here. I, I was uh, glued to the BBC till the small hours myself, but uh, <laughs> I woke up to find. Yeah, of course, you know it's huge news here. There's a lot of uh, interest and affection for the British royal family. There's a, a very close connection between the, the Japanese royals and the British royals. It stretches back to the 19th century. Queen Victoria's son came to Japan um, in 1869, and it goes on from there. Hirohito visited the UK in the 20s, referred to George V, actually, uh, the Queen's uh, grandfather. As a, he spoke of him as a second father. And then it goes on from there. Akihito came as crown prince to the Queen's coronation. And then as emperor, he, he visited a lot. And I think, you know, you saw in the message today from Fumio Kishida, the prime minister, he, he spoke, you know, in a very sincere way 
um, of the sadness, passed on his condolences. But he did also speak about the Queen's role in cementing the relationship. And I think that's that's been a very interesting uh, process over the over the decades since the Second World War. Um, you know, it was absolutely critical. The Queen's role in that, you can imagine, um, Hirohito, who was emperor during the war, came to London in 1971, didn't get the warmest reception. And the Queen spoke at a dinner and said, let, you know, we can't pretend the past has never existed, but what we can do is, is never let these things happen again. And, you know, she, she reiterated that 1998 when Hirohito's son, who's by then emperor, when he came, it was still a difficult relationship. These visits were still uh, very controversial, you know, and you realise now, since then, it's it's been smoothed over. But she played a really important role in that diplomacy. And, and Prime Minister Kishida um, was acknowledging that today. What you spoke about there is uh, to speak about events which are in not necessarily in the most recent past. Uh, what was the Queen's voice or her presence or relevance to Japan in the last couple of years? Well, Naruhito, who's the current emperor, um, he, he studied at Oxford and so did his wife. And they, they visited Windsor Castle. They, they, they knew the Queen and, and her husband, uh, Philip. And, uh, you know, their daughter, Aiko, did summer school at Eton. There, there are continuing links. I think, you know, there's a sort of a sense of, uh, you know, I think mutual respect. And, yes, it's certainly true to say how relevant is it to people's lives in Japan today? Not very relevant, probably. But I think you, you certainly got a sense of uh, the respect that was felt. And I think Kishida conveyed that very well. Fiona, thank you very much indeed for that. Tomos Lewis in Toronto, a part of the Commonwealth. Justin Trudeau photographed not so long ago holding the Queen's hand in, in, in the United Kingdom. The warmth and the sparkle between them was, was absolutely evident. How is a, a member of the Commonwealth dealing, you know, re responding to her death? Well, I think Justin Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister, and as you say, he made a very emotional speech yesterday. He was with the Canadian cabinet in Vancouver for a cabinet retreat and he made a very brief statement but his eyes looked pretty pretty wet and pretty red and his voice seemed to tremble a little bit because his his own relationship with the Queen is a pretty unique one. He first met Queen Elizabeth when he was only a child when his father Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, was uh, then Prime Minister of Canada and of course then fast forward to 2015 when he himself was elected uh, to be Prime Minister of Canada he had a new uh, sort of relationship of his own with the monarch and he spoke very affectionately about uh, that as he said that meeting between the Queen uh, and Justin Trudeau he said in his statement yesterday that he still couldn't quite come to terms with the fact that that meeting uh, was was going to be his last meeting with her, given how warm that relationship was and how fondly he remembered it, Emma. And he said that she was one of his favourite people, which seems like a slightly strange tone to strike when you have um, the world leaders issuing not necessarily wildly dissimilar speeches and, and, and tributes. There's that, there's that sort of warmth and humanity, actually, that, that I think many of us found rather unusual and rather striking, Thomas. Yes, I think it was. And again, I think that speaks, Emma, to just how unusual in many ways the fact that Justin Trudeau was first introduced to the Queen when he was a was a child and has maybe a relationship in that sense that many other world leaders 
don't don't have and, and don't enjoy. I think it's an interesting tone that he set because, as you say, Emma, it was a really sort of human a, a human speech. I thought that he gave, and I think that comes at a time, especially over the past year and a half, when you look at opinion polls here, maybe resonating a little with what Andrew was talking about earlier in Australia. That you know, affection uh, for the monarchy, uh, for Canada to retaining the sort of British monarch as the head of state here, that appetite does seem to be waning pretty consistently over the years. That said, those same surveys did show that the Queen herself remained very, very popular here. She visited Canada, I think, 22 times during her reign, and she famously called it a home away from home on her last visit, I think it was, uh, in 2010. I think, again, this process of, of changing the banknotes here, uh, stamps, for example, those kind of things. There was an interesting moment yesterday when the news was moving quite quickly during a citizenship ceremony when apparently the judge, obviously people who become new citizens of Canada have to pledge allegiance to the Queen, but there was an uncertainty of who the head of state was at the time. And then she she uh, picked up the ceremony where they paused it from, uh, saying that they would now be pledging their allegiance to King Charles III. So, so yes, we'll, we'll see how, how the relationship continues um, on, uh, you know, as this ceremonial aspect of this now continues um, into the longer term. But I think as well, just briefly, if I could say, the relationship obviously between uh, the royal family and Canada's indigenous populations has been a huge focus of national debate here, particularly over the past year, year and a half. And, and the role of Canada's colonial history is also something that's playing a big part in the conversations here too, uh, on various sides of the debate um, following yesterday's um, events in Scotland. And That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Limau, never-ending story. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.